Hi, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Sienna. And you're listening to And Yet. Conversations about the intersection of culture and health. Why do we go there? Because frankly, we need to. And we want you to know, we're with you. We all have a story we need to help unpack. But where do we fucking start? And where do we even end? Here's your permission to meet us in the messy middle. The And Yet Podcast with Sienna and Kelsey. So the last week has been pretty hectic in the news, and I feel like that's the last pretty, week or the last um, two years. <laughs> yeah, last two years, and I just feel like that's representative of pretty much every week. Every Monday morning, I'm like, "Well, that was a pretty fucked up week, right?" Oh <laughs> and my here God. we go again. <laughs> exactly, and it's like you go to bed at night, and then you wake up, and the first thought in the morning is, "What happened today?" Or what happened overnight or what happened yesterday. And it's always my first, okay, what are we going to hear about today? Uh, Totally. And and often, you know, Monday mornings I'll be feeling a little bit more motivated than other times in the week. Good for you. (laughs) Monday mornings are the worst. uh, I don't know. I'm just like, anyway, I'll then look at the news and kind of just get that sinking feeling again. And I just feel like it's this kind of groundhog day repetition and, and desensitizing because of, you know, the crap that's going on on a daily basis. And I feel sometimes really, really exhausted by it. I don't know about you. Absolutely. And it's hard to process because it is becoming normal. And I think that that's a really scary time in our history when we start to normalize shootings and we normalize outrageous texts by our president and like all these things that are not normal and should not ever be thought of as normal. And like you said, it's we're just becoming desensitized. Which is a great segue into our <laughs> conversation today. So today we're, we're talking about a topic centering around a concept called compassion fatigue, which really is what it sounds like. It was originally kind of created as a way to describe what a lot of people specifically working in the medical community experience, which is a feeling of burnout and eventual complacency as a result of their everyday experiences dealing with traumatic experiences and kind of that empathetic notion when they're dealing with with their patients. Having to be a constant caretaker or care provider, I think is, is something hard to always have to be on. In absolutely. Those yeah. Absolutely. So that's kind of the, originally where the concept came from and then eventually got widened to a more kind of general sense of just, again, fatigue and burnout and complacency that the general population can feel as a result of consistent trauma, like what we just talked about. So the reason we wanted to record this and talk about compassion fatigue is because we've just recorded the episode, We Believe You Even If Your Doctor Didn't. And that's truthfully one of kind of the crux episodes in why we wanted to create this podcast in general. Kels, I feel like you give a really great description. Yeah, well, I think initially we wanted to do the podcast more from a health standpoint. And then we realized that we had so many other topics that we wanted to cover. And it's more how cultural issues relate to our health. I'm somebody who has struggled immensely with the medical community over the past 15 years or so. It took me over 10 years to get diagnosed with endometriosis. I sat in doctor's office after doctor's office begging somebody to help me and being turned away. And so I have just like a lot of animosity towards that community. But I'm also starting to realize that this is a top down effect. And why is it that the community is treating us this way? And and why is it that medical providers 
aren't listening to us and kind of wanting to examine the flip side of that too. Exactly. So this is as much about the why, because we're not saying every person in the medical community, A, can't do their job or B, is crap or C, doesn't give a shit. It's clearly not that we both know incredibly talented and passionate and empathetic people in in the medical community. But it's looking at the why and it's looking at the flip side. You know, this is not an easy profession and we don't want to profess to, you know, hate on that genre of work when, you know, we're not doing it ourselves. So there's got to be a reason that this is a very prevalent feeling. And it, it is really hard work. I think it's it is difficult to show up every day and, and give that much of yourself to somebody else or to multiple somebody else's in this case. Yeah. And to that point, this is a very widespread thing, depending what study you look at, it's affecting up to 40% of medical workers and then take it to the ICU and you're looking at up to 70% of workers in that field. So that brings us to our guest today, Dr. Natalie Martinek, who is an absolute superstar. And we were introduced by our wonderful producer, Ginny, who has been fortunate enough to meet Dr. Natalie and under a variety of circumstances and even studying together. But Dr. Martinek is a well-being mentor. She's a coach. She's an educator, specifically for physicians and healthcare professionals. So she understands this topic better than anyone. She's originally from Toronto, but now lives in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) She has a PhD in developmental biology, and she's also the founder of a new app called Safe Space, which we're really, really excited to talk about a little bit later in this episode. Welcome, Dr. Natalie. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. So before you decided to dedicate your life to understanding and supporting healthcare workers, you actually wanted to focus on cancer research. Is that correct? Yes. I spent five years as a postdoctoral researcher in Melbourne at an adult cancer hospital and ended up having a crisis of faith before I realized there's more going on than biology and genetics. And I wanted to discover what that was. Wow. (laughs) So that disillusionment, can you kind of describe how you were feeling and how that led to a a course correct, I suppose? Yes. If you look at the academic setting, there's a lot of pressure to publish in order to stay alive, to Mm -hmm. get funding. And so I started to notice how driven people were for answers for not necessarily the right reasons. And it led to some negative behaviors that weren't making me look around and say, I want to be, you're my mentor, you're my guide Mm -hmm. for success. It got to the point where I started reading journal articles or going to presentations of people's research and I would be able to pick out the unconscious bias right away and it would unravel their entire theory in my mind. And after a while I was like, what am I doing here? Because I'm not believing a lot of what's being studied and because we so want our research to be published. We want it to be seen as valid. And we're not doing it necessarily for the right reasons. And this isn't everyone, mm-hmm. but everything I was seeing was just not where I wanted to be. That must be really scary for you to kind of have spent such a long time focusing on an area and seeing this kind of fundamental flaw at the crux of, of what's happening. Yeah, and one of the things I find really interesting about what you're seeing right now is that when I think of scientific research... I think scientific (laughs) research, which seems very like there's a protocol and it's very factual. And so to hear that occasionally there are these biases, even within this very 
controlled type mm. environment. Is there like an example or maybe the first time that that came up for you and you realized that this is actually a human experience that's playing into this research? Well, because I was studying an area that most people found unsexy mm-hmm. because people like to follow what's sexy anywhere. Mm-hmm. True that's that. what's trendy, right? <laughs> Even in academia, in, in science. So I was able to see things in a way that people weren't thinking about because I studied the area outside of the cell. What's happening outside of the cellular environment where everyone's focus was what's going on inside. Let's control it. If we control mm-hmm. it, therefore we can change outcomes. Because of that, I started to recognize what people were doing to recreate, say, cancer scenarios using mice or using tissue culture cells. And I was like, but this is the disease in progress. This isn't addressing the source of the problem. This isn't reproducing the natural environment. And because I studied the natural environment, I was like, what are you, what are you people doing? You're not able to Connect reproduce the it. Yes. science. And yeah. using mice. And mice don't have human consciousness. You know, right. zebrafish don't have human yeah. consciousness. So how are we addressing zebrafish? This? I'm not trying to cast doubt <laughs> on all science. No, no, no. But I hear that's, you. This is what my experience was, and so it, again, it, it created a sort of ethical crisis. Why are we spending all this money, time, energy, sacrificing animals or insects, which is what I was working on at the time, in order to go through something that may not be meaningful for the patients downstairs, yeah, waiting yeah. for treatment or going through treatment, and also experiencing the secondary effects of those treatments. So I became more interested in what their experience was more than what their biology was. Totally, totally. But even with that in mind, when we're speaking to the topic of compassion fatigue, do you believe that there is a biochemical reaction the way that there might be when you experience general anxiety or depression? Is there some type of physiological explanation for compassion fatigue? It's more of a constellation of symptoms. So compassion fatigue that doesn't get dealt with will lead to depression, anxiety, which you can, you know, everything's biochemical, everything has biochemical reaction, but compassion fatigue is not something that you can go, here's a pill for that. Yeah. It requires a variety of therapies and supports to overcome the effects of that and regain your feelings again. Right. Your capacity to feel. So it's kind of symptom-based. In terms of diagnosing it, it would be, okay, really assessing it, somebody's life holistically and looking at indicators and symptoms and kind of diagnosing it in that way? There's an assessment tool that okay. uh, looks at compassion satisfaction and compassion fatigue. So it's how well you're going with compassion. But, yeah, it's not quite accurate because there's more to it than just being exposed to trauma. Explain to us this, I don't want to say theory, because I I think it's actually very true, but this idea of compassion fatigue. Yeah, there's a few definitions. I mean, there's been a few experts, and I haven't published in a a journal around it. Uh, My authority comes from observation and then noticing trends in all caring professions that contribute to the symptoms of compassion fatigue. So it really has nothing to do with compassion, because if you're truly expressing compassion, it energizes you. So you can't get fatigued by it. It's just the denial of the feelings that facing distress or human suffering brings up in you that creates the loss of empathy or the reduction of empathy and the ability to be with someone when they're in distress. And then when we shut that part of ourselves down, we're not able to feel anything over time. Yeah, we become but- numb. So that's main thing. So it's the, the definition I like to use is that it's more of compassion is the emotion that you feel 
when you feel concerned for someone and you need to take action to help bring justice to a situation. Yeah. So it's a really a feeling, but it's also an action. So it's not like, right. oh, poor them. A lot of the time, compassion is synonymous with pity or sympathy, which it's not. Because sympathy is more about how I would feel if I were in their situation yeah. when it has nothing to do with you. Or pity is like, oh, poor them. Poor them. I'm going to reach out for them rather than seeing them as equal or capable of bringing themselves out of a situation or you helping them to, you know, to thrive in a situation. Because we all have challenges. We're all here. So obviously we've gone through enough. Yeah. We have enough strength to get us through it. Or we have, we're very good at co-opting people to help us do what we need. <laughs> Either way, Absolutely. these are survivor yeah. skills, survival skills. So compassion fatigue results from not being able to deal with the emotions and not having the self-care practices to right. keep us in a recharge state or get us recharged at the end of the day of experiencing distress, suffering, trauma. Makes a lot of sense. So how is the medical community today being taught about the role of empathy? It's more now than it ever was, but it's not in wide, widespread in curricula. It depends on the initiatives within the community. They're taught that empathy is important. They're taught more about the science of empathy, that empathy can be broken down into more cognitive and more feeling-based. Sorry, I just, mm. I, the science of empathy is like I know, kind there's of a, a science. Term. Yeah, because yeah, I think of yeah. empathy as being such like a... Feeling. A feeling, a spiritual, yeah. a, I don't even know how to put it into words. So yeah. I had no idea that there's like a science behind empathy. <laughs> yeah. And again, there's no harmonized definition of compassion or empathy. So I like to use the one that makes sense to me based mm-hmm. on Absolutely. what is consistent. So empathy is your ability to manage, imaginatively experience the world from someone else's perspective. It's what is experienced when one feels other people's pain as well as their joy. So it's not about how you feel if you are going through mm-hmm. what they're going through. It's like everyone's in their own bubble and you're taking a glimpse inside their bubble. You're seeing the picture of what's going on in their life, what's contributing to their experience. Yeah. But because no one could ever go through a similar experience as someone else, even if we have similar stories, we can't totally know what's going on for them. We could just imagine what it might be like for them and the feelings that will be stirred up. So it's a quality and a skill. So it's something Mm -hmm. that is innate within us at various volumes, and it's something that we do. So we empathically communicate, we empathically listen, we get into a space where we can receive what the other person is experiencing, the emotions, and our ability to reflect our understanding or what they're sharing with us is an act of empathy. It's necessary for building trust and a therapeutic relationship in any helping profession. Well, and along those lines, because I think part of maybe what contributes to compassion fatigue or burnout with empaths is it does become this exchange of energy and and we tend to take on energy at a a larger level, I Mm -hmm. guess. So I don't know, maybe you could speak a little bit to that as well and how that is contributing to what these professionals are feeling. Yeah. So think of empathy as a spectrum. Every emotion is on a spectrum. So Mm -hmm. we'll focus on empathy. And so there's the not enough empathy or apathy where you just don't care at all or you just can't even connect and you don't even want to connect. And the other end is you just feel everything. So there's no distinction between your feeling state and their feeling state. You're perceiving. my husband and I. I I feel everything (laughs) all the time. And he's like, (laughs) I don't see why you're upset. Yeah. 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 So (laughs) you are so influenced. You become influenced by the influx of emotion because emotions are contagious. Yeah. So there's this thing called emotional contagion. (laughs) We, and trauma is contagious as well. So if we are 
listening to someone share a story of a traumatic situation, if we feel any distress or anxiety or any negativity, anything that is not love or equanimity, mm. we can absorb it or, you know, because it's activating something in ourselves, like the threat, oh my God, oh my God, right. what happens if that's something happening to me or whatever the stories that are yeah. playing out. So there's a sweet spot of empathy, which is, I know the difference between my emotions and their emotions. I know where I end and they begin. Mm -hmm. And my job is to be present with them. So even though what they're saying might be bringing up some stuff in me, I know how to park it and deal with it later. I'm here for them. So you, you maintain a focus on helping the other person. Right. You maintain a focus and adherence to your role. What is my purpose with this person right now? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a friend, maybe I've got the friend hat, or a therapist, or a doctor, doesn't matter, a lawyer, teacher. There's, I'm here to help, but I'm not here to give all my energy to that person. I'm here to do what is within my realm, within what I can do. But I'm not responsible for them, unless it's my own child. Yeah. But I'm not responsible for their development, for their growth, unless we have some sort of arrangement where yeah. I'm coaching them through something or helping them through a process. But again, it's up to them. Right. Well, and it's a little bit of their story isn't your story. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's a distinction that we struggle to make. Yeah. yeah, especially when we read something or we watch a movie or we listen to the news and we can immediately identify with it. So yeah. as soon as we identify with it, we cease to be with that other person. We start to become self-focused. So empathy is kind of the doorway into, well, I see it as a doorway into compassion. Compassion is not automatically there. We have to feel yeah. what's needed before we know how to express compassion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes compassion is saying nothing or doing nothing. And other times it's stepping in and saying, this is crazy what's happening here. This is an injustice mm -hmm. and this is wrong and we need to do something about it. So in medicine, there's lots of injustices that happen every day that are witnessed, whether it's bullying by a colleague and other you know, students or people within a team are too afraid to do anything because, well, there's the hierarchy mm -hmm. or, you know, trying to resuscitate a 95 year old person who, you know, there's doing all these life-saving things when they're not going to be around or they're already yeah. dead. You know, I've heard so many stories of things like that and trying to do all these heroic efforts at the wrong time. Yeah. So stepping over some ethical boundaries and witnessing that or being part of that or doing that, that will have an, a bearing on your empathic ability because it brings up all sorts of things like shame guilt mm -hmm. i bet God. and yeah. so once you feel those things it's hard to remain centered and in your heart essentially i feel like i'm just picturing all these medical professionals leaving their job at the end of the day in this fight or flight kind of mentality that's just i don't know like how do you wake up the next day and continue it's become the normal yeah it's normalized it's the part of the training where you know, you have all these really heart-centered, or most of the people who go into medicine, I imagine, are people who want to help. Yeah. They feel like they have something that they can give and help someone. But they're not necessarily learning about the role of empathy and that empathy is required in order to know what's needed. As Along with the education, the, the knowledge, and the mm -hmm. clinical skills, there's a feeling, there's an ability to tune in to what's happening for the patient and being able to give them what's needed. So more of an intuitive element. And they're not necessarily taught that. They're actually taught, not formally taught, but what they end up doing is squashing those abilities and becoming more cognitive. Then that creates all sorts of anxieties because there's parts of themselves that they become ashamed of. Mm -hmm. I can't be too intuitive here. There's no place for it. I have no evidence. It's not written in papers. Mm -hmm. I, you know, so it 
leads to lots of crises,、mm-hmm. but it's not known that these are the crises. It's、right. just depression, it's anxiety, it's you know suppression through drug use or alcohol、right. or overwork or perfectionism, approval addiction. You yeah, know, you name it. And is the educational community beginning to understand this, or is it changing at all? Is there any hope? <laughs> yeah, there's changing. There's hope.、Yay. There's always hope because there's enough people who go through. So, I should say that compassion fatigue and burnout are used interchangeably, and burnout seems to be more of the top, the subject matter right now. Yeah. But I see burnout as one of the the contributing factors to compassion fatigue, and I see it more as. Abuse by the system, and that prevents doctors and nurses and, and health professionals from doing what they signed up to do. They went in wanting to help people, and then now there's all this admin, admin. There's you know crazy relationships, interpersonal conflict, crazy long hours, lack of sleep, that prevents them from actually getting that job done. That contributes to burnout, and then that is part of the overarching compassion fatigue.、Mm-hmm. Right, and. What we speak about in our episode, we believe you, even if your doctor didn't, is, is sort of all the ways in which we often don't feel heard by the medical community.、Mm-hmm. However, Sian and I also recognize that it's a top-down; it's a trickle effect. They're not feeling heard; they're burnt out. They can't give each patient what that patient deserves in that moment. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about that aspect of it too? So, if you read research evidence, and it's not just literature from the U.S. or Western countries; it's from everywhere that. The empathic ability or the empathy the scale of empathy actually reduces from first-year medicine onward. So imagine what it's like、oh, for、seriously? a doctor、wow. to when they eventually become a doctor and they're practicing what their empathic capacity is. So that already tells you the training or the education that they go through. That's scary. Doesn't make space for the skills that are required to、mm-hmm. the development of the skills that are required to actually be a healer, because you need empathy、totally. to create that safe space to connect with your. Patient, in order to give them what's needed, and what's needed isn't necessarily a drug. Sometimes they have a story that needs to come out, and that coming out is part of the healing because finally they have a space to let it out, and they hadn't before.、Mm-hmm. And so when they're not being heard, or they feel like they're not being heard, then they don't open up in that way, or they shut down. So any healing potential gets shut down as well because it takes two、yeah. for that to happen. Now there's at different levels of training. There's more education, information, but the only way to develop empathy is to have experiences of it. So an ability to be in someone else's shoes. So you hear about doctors who become patients, and they realize, oh my God, what if that's what I've been doing? Because now they're experiencing the treatment that they never realized that were they were doing to their patients, and they vow never to be that doctor again. So there's a grace there where they、yeah. get to experience that, or they get sick, which you know is not always wonderful. But if they're able to come out the other side with more of awakened,、mm-hmm. then they're the people who end up creating the shifts in their in their immediate institution, or broader than that. So more and more people are getting burned out, but when they recover from it, they their eyes have been opened, and that's empathy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your patients do they tend to be kind of self-aware and then come to you, or are they people that are kind of advised to go to you、both. externally? Okay, yeah, both. So a friend who's either worked with me, a friend of theirs, and they have had some success, then they would refer, or they see someone see something and they just get in touch. We may not ever work together,、mm-hmm. but there's lots of conversations that go on privately, and then raises some awareness on their end, and then you know they go off and. 
take that into their life somewhere. And yeah. eventually they might come back and talk to me again for like phase two of what I need to work on. So it just depends. Self-awareness is required because mm. most of the people will deny that they have burnout, you know, especially when they're reading articles because it's a depersonalized culture. Yeah. Dehumanized. People have ceased to become people. You know, the first experience with a body is with a dead body. What a great way to already create a disconnect between life mm -hmm. and living yeah, and, right. and the doctor in training. So you start to see a person as parts instead of whole. So while medicine or the way the training has come about is really great at being able to subdivide things and people into symptoms or parts, they haven't been great at building people back up into human rather than the person with depression, the survivor of cancer. You know, these badges might be really important for some patients, but if the doctors only see them in that limited way, then how can they help them see them as a human who can thrive and transcend these diagnoses or these illnesses? Yeah. Because there's lots of people walking around who have illnesses but are happy, who are fulfilled, but they're still living. It's not stopping yeah. them from living. So unless we can see that possibility or potential for anyone, even if it never happens... How, how are we going to help them grow and get through stuff? Yeah, well, and that makes me wonder, too, does, does anybody, do any of your clients ever come to you? Do you call them clients or patients? In your clients, clients, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not yeah, that kind, we were, of, we not that kind of doctor. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's what we thought, but I wanted to be sure. But do your clients ever come to you because they're taking preventative measure, or is it always that they are in crisis mode when they get to you? They don't know they're in crisis, but they're in crisis. Okay. A lot of the time, they're numb. They're emotionally numb, and they just stop caring. Yeah, You know, it's just very like, I don't really give a shit about my patient's yeah. stuff. They just don't care. And that alarms them because that's a kind of a newer feeling for them. Then it's now uh, chipping away at, well, what helped bring you to this place? And how do we get your desire back? How do we help you start to choose your experience, choose your life instead of going through this set pathway to success? Because yeah. a lot of them are like, oh, I'll be happy once I do this. And then, oh, there's this next thing I get to do. And then, then I'll be happy. It's like, it's never going to come. Yeah. It's now. And it's not about happiness. It's about fulfillment. So despite the challenges of, you know, dealing with people who are suffering all the time, you don't have to take that on. Your job is to be there for them to create a safe space mm -hmm. and to give your love in the form of you know, treatments or support and not make them wait three weeks before a test result because these people are freaking out. So it's really understanding what the needs are and being interested in being able to help in that way. There's a yeah. curiosity and interest that's required. And it's so they so lose true. interest. So they basically lose their mojo or their libido for yeah. life, oh, for all areas of, of life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, losing your libido for life. Mm. Yeah. Is it too much to think that one person can be both these things, this analytical scientific doctor who, you know, can diagnose symptoms that they're experiencing and also this caretaker role. Question. And yeah, and I ask because I, I volunteer as an abortion doula. It's my absolute favorite thing that I do. <laughs> But it's really hard and it's really emotional. And I do it once a month and I go home and I cry and then I, you know, kind of go on. And it's been a really healing experience for me in the sense that I understand from kind of what you were saying before, but it's the reverse. Now I'm, I'm the patient sort of in this medical role, though a dual is not in a medical role. But I'm now understanding why doctors have to turn it off and why they have to move on and go to the next patient. And is it too much to think that one person could be all those things? 
Uh, it's not too much. It's totally possible. It's just knowing when to make that switch sometimes. And it's infusing the analytical part with the love and caring. Mm -hmm. It's not about having these two distinct parts to us because we can't compartmentalize. But right. some people can do that well, but it comes at an expense. So they do drop their emotional capacity, that they have a smaller range of feeling happiness, sadness than maybe someone like me who goes very deep into some feelings because I invite them. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of them. I've been practicing and strength training at sadness and grief and, right. <laughs> and remorse and all those other feelings that are quite uncomfortable. Yeah. And so because a lot of feelings have been categorized as good or bad versus they're just feelings and some feel great and some feel like crap that people reject them, deny them, they squash them in, they don't want to feel them, and then they have to use all sorts of substances to mm -hmm. stop them from feeling it. But, you know, the best cleansing thing to do is to cry. That's how you maintain your humanity, through crying, letting those things affect you and Please letting it out. tell my husband that because I cry a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but if we think about how men have, a lot of men have been conditioned out of their sensitivity mm -hmm. from a young age, you know, suck it up, be a man, all this stuff. Whereas women or girls feel it's okay to feel more emotional, it's more mm. socially accepted. But if you think about when we were kids, at least with my family and many other families, when I'd be upset, why are you crying? But when I'm happy, there's no questions. No one's saying, what, you're joyful, snap out of it. Absolutely. So we start to develop a narrative around certain emotions that we have to justify them. And then after a while, we don't want to justify them anymore. Or we just keep justifying, and instead of justifying, we're just like squashing them down. So when we're confronted with things like human suffering, distress, pain, we don't know how to deal with it because we don't have the strength or we haven't built the strength to just be there with it and not do anything about it. There's nothing to fix. Mm. Unless it's a life-threatening situation, you really don't have to fix anything. You just have to be present with it. And how do we go about changing that narrative towards digesting what is labeled as a negative feeling so you can call so negative you can call it a negative feeling just don't assume it's a bad, bad feeling. feeling thank you yeah so you just have to feel it the only way to deal with our fear is to confront it because the negative feelings bring up a sort of it's the same as feeling threatened by anything mm -hmm. so sadness oh no fight or flight right? So we don't want to feel it. We want, yeah. to, we want to run. We want to do something and push that patient out of their feelings because, well, we're not comfortable with that. So it becomes about us. Yeah. Whereas the right empathic range, when we're in that sweet spot, it's like, I can be there and it has nothing to do with me. And I remember what my purpose is with them. What is the ultimate purpose in this situation, in this context with this patient? So we have to go through maybe a mental checklist yeah. or a mental process. Sometimes we do have to turn down our empathy because of the situation we're in. If you think about soldiers at war, yeah. they can't be empathic and have to do all sorts of things because they won't, it's hard enough and they do suffer for it. They do develop moral injury as a result of having to do some really heinous things that go against their values, but they did it for their country or their whatever their reasons were. So they have to live with that and start to develop a positive framework to see themselves that they could do that and still be a good person. Yeah. So surgeons, they can't, be in this feeling state, they have to be very respectful to the patient and careful, but they have to also turn their empathy back on after. So think, I think of it as a volume. So we can turn it down, but we also have to turn it back to our default setting or even greater than before. And so after a while of not turning it back on, it just becomes lower and lower and lower until we can become sort of like so sociopaths or psychopaths. Yeah. Psychopaths who, that's a different thing, but people <laughs> who just don't feel. 
Yeah. Right. And they yeah. just do things and they don't feel and they can be treat you like really badly and they don't even know it. Doesn't even register that they did something terrible to you or said something terrible to you because they they just totally they don't have empathy. It's not bad. It's not that they're bad people. It's just that that their capacity has been reduced and they need unless they find it's a problem, mm -hmm. they need to have ways to raise it again. Well, I also think too like in a, at least in America and I'm sure this, it's similar in other cultures as well, but I don't know at what point in our society this happened, but we can't just have discomfort in our lives ever. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I'll feel uncomfortable about something, a little anxious, and I'll automatically go and turn on the television. Mm -hmm. And even my husband is actually very self-aware, and he's like, no, 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 Sienna, <laughs> deal with this, talk to me for a second. I'm like, I just want to watch reality television. <laughs> right. Oh, reality, yes. And, but it, I've finally realized that that is the worst thing that I can possibly do in that moment. And I've learned to kind of, okay, I have to talk through this and digest it and kind of assess what's going on at a deeper level here. But it's it's definitely inherent in the way that, that we're taught as kids yeah. are growing up. Well, within medicine, there's a sense, and I don't think, again, that this is something overtly taught, but somehow their education means that there's certainty, that somehow they're going to have the answers, they're always going to have the answers, and patients come to them with the expectation that they'll just know, they'll have the answers. So, but there is no certainty, you know, that's, but the constants are that there's change, mm -hmm. it's always going to be change, and there's no such thing as certainty, except that one day we'll be physically dead. So the point is to deal with the discomforts of everyday life mm -hmm. and not try to distract ourselves out of it so that we avoid it yeah learning to sit with it or just use it as a as a motivational tool to do something positive our ways to deal with it speaking to that so on kind of a practical level beyond obviously having this client relationship what are some of the kind of yeah i guess practical high level things that you'd recommend to clients once they leave your office so it depends on what they were dealing with so True. If we're, I'm, yeah, <laughs> it's like, well, where do we start? <laughs> Depends on their particular nuance. Sometimes they mm -hmm. need to learn how to communicate their needs because ultimately our emotions are messengers for an unmet need. So for feeling sad, it's like we're, we're missing something. We feel like we've lost something and we need to deal with that lost part of ourselves mm -hmm. or that lost part from our lives. Disappointment is that an expectation wasn't met. So we have to reassess our expectations, what we wanted from that situation, any anger we've directed at anyone because yeah. they didn't meet our expectation. So that all these feelings, they're telling us something. So we have to learn to listen to them and we can feel them in our body. If we have tension in our body or pain, we can I, help people to actually tune into their body and almost have a conversation, interrogate that pain instead of trying to numb it with medications, like talk to it first and like listen to it, which sounds a bit crazy. But if you're giving that part of your body or your, your mind that attention and you're giving it space to kind of express itself, then usually the pain goes away. So we can't be afraid of it. We can't be afraid of our emotions. We're not going to die from feeling things. We can get really sick and lead to all sorts of mental health stuff by avoiding our feelings, by being scared of them, by saying this, this group of feelings are bad. And, you know, I don't want to generalize because people have experienced trauma and people who have experienced complex trauma. It's hard for them to feel certain things because they're associated with that hard time. So mm -hmm. I'm not exactly going to send them back in time space to revisit or re-expose themselves. But for them, it's, again, strength training and feeling certain feelings and then divorce, recognizing that feeling is just a feeling. It has no story. And divorcing the narrative 
from that feeling and then transforming or evolving that narrative to see themselves in a more positive light, more of the person that they know they want to be yeah. or that how other people see them, but they feel too ashamed to acknowledge it because they may, may not have had positive role models in their life around that time. Yeah. So it really is an effort to want to see the positives and bring balance to the negative stories because our brain is geared to seek threat all the time and to only see the negative. So we have effort, we have job to do to go, that's one way of interpreting the yeah. situation or this feeling. What are the other ways? What are the other possible perspectives? By doing that, you can start to make it a more of an automatic process where you're like, this is one way of seeing it and these are the other ways I can see it. Become more objective or yeah. balanced. Yeah. It's a lot more to it than this, but it sounds a similar idea to cognitive behavioral therapy and the kind of assessing what's real and what's not and providing evidence to way to the way that you're feeling. Is that a fair comparison? So cognitive behavioral therapy is great for looking at thinking skills and helping people develop different mindsets that are more supportive of self-belief, positive self-belief. Whereas when you're dealing with people who have experienced complex trauma as, as children or even as adults, the thinking can only take you so far because the experience is held in the body and trauma is an incompleted process. You know, it's like a frozen in space and time of an, in an event. And so we want to help people become more courageous at feeling those visceral experiences where those emotions have been held in their body without re-traumatizing. So it's a very gentle process and there's lots of ways of going about it, but there's the thinking faculty and there's a feeling faculty and they're very different and we can't lump them all together because mm -hmm. the feeling part is the the part that is harder to deal with for people because again of all the ways we've been raised and conditioned and programmed and needing some deprogramming or reprogramming so a way of dealing with our natural tendency to go into negative places negative thoughts and some downward spirals is to go that's one way of seeing it what other evidence can I see from my life or from this experience? What other perspectives are there to bring a balance back in? Because for every negative, there should be a positive. So we have to put a lot of effort and mindfulness to want to see a different perspective in our situation without denying that negative reality, just like that it can coexist with this positive reality that I have evidence for as well. So objectivity is something to strive for to help us come into a balanced mindset around our life experiences. I, I love what you just said about courageousness when you're kind of going through this process. I think that's so true. Switching gears slightly into kind of thinking about compassion fatigue in the broader sense and what we're going through as a society, particularly in America, where it's a pretty chaotic political and social environment and we receive constantly all of the negative information. It's very hard to switch off and not kind of get exposed to this constantly. I know I certainly feel overwhelmed sometimes and I just need to put my head in the sand for a little time <laughs> and, then I, and then I'll be able to kind of move on. But for a lot of people, I think it does become extremely overwhelming. Do you think this is a growing issue more broadly? I think it's always been around, but with media, how invasive and pervasive it is now, you invasive can access it right. all the time. And let's look at the intentions of media. They're not necessarily there to make us feel better. They're there to, you know, make money and doom and gloom and have a story and create stories out of nothing, spinning. So 
Again, compassion fatigue has nothing to do with compassion. It's more of empathic distress or empathic overload. So an overload of stimuli around or information that's quite negative all the time. So yes, we get negatively impacted by the news, especially what's going on in the country right now, that there's such you know extremes of stances. And if we can overly identify with either side, we will get drowned in that story, in that narrative, instead of going, okay, these two or three point, these three realities exist. What else is existing here? What can I appreciate about what's going on right now? What is it enabling to help a society or help a population grow? What are we working towards? You know, we have to remember that there's there's some sort of purpose or meaning behind whatever's going on, that it's not static. Change doesn't happen overnight, but all these little things are contributing to something. And what's our vision that we want to all achieve? We all want success. We all want, all want prosperity. So what is the thing? What are the evidence, even among the most horrendous bits of news, that shine through and match or are aligned with that positive vision? So again, it takes a lot of effort. But if you look at bartenders, hairdressers, you know, nail salon, they're all hearing our stories all the time. So everyone's impacted by our stuff. If they don't know how to kind of create a shield between, or a porous shield between what other people's stuff and their own stuff, then they will just internalize it. Because when you hear a problem, you start to think, shit, there's something I have to do about it. It's like, no, I don't. I'm just here to listen. Yeah. You know, I have no arrangements with this person that I'm going to solve it for them. Even though I've given them advice in the past, I'm not obligated to give advice because actually it's their life. I can't advise on something going on in their life based on snippets of information yeah. they're giving me. Mm-hmm. What aren't they telling me? What they're not telling me is that they have pleasure. They enjoy life. They have great things going on for them. The same with patients. We're not looking, they're not being asked What are the great things happening for your life? What are the things that you've come through in your life that you can apply now in this situation? They're not trained to think that way. Doctors are trained to find the problem, assess it, diagnose it, and treat. They're not assuming that Mm -hmm. the medicine can also lie within the patient. Mm -hmm. Their strength, their connection, their spirituality, their religious belief, whatever it is, are parts of the support that is within them that can help them thrive, which they have used in the past. So if we're not asking what are the good things that we can see in this situation, then we don't see it and we, be, we remain biased and we make decisions from that negative bias instead of the best possible outcome. Yeah, and kind of brings it back to your point about it's kind of inherent in human nature to focus on the negative. That's how our brain is geared. Oh, man. Tricky brain. Like so wrong tricky. with that. <laughs> Don't let it trick you. Yeah. Well, and I remember one of my favorite memes that's, I mean, there's been so many good ones since you know, he got elected in 2016. Yeah, does not deserve a name. But one of my favorite memes was how we're kind of alternating between rage and not feeling like you're doing enough. And I think right now we're living in these two high intensity emotions. And I feel like I haven't relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like even in moments where you can be relaxing, you you almost feel guilty for relaxing because there's so much that needs to be done. And how do we deal with that? How do we, you know, preserve ourselves so that we can do more? It's a really great question. I think it comes back to what do you think your purpose of life is? What is the purpose of life? For me, it's just growth and evolution. So all the crap that I have to experience, the crap that everyone has to experience, provides me with the opportunity for growth. How I grow is by doing good things in the world. Do I try to save everything happening in Africa or in other places? Maybe if I feel a particular calling, but 
I can only focus on what's in my own backyard. Start in your own home, because seriously, there's going to be stuff in your own relationships, in your own life, (laughs) and it becomes so easy to start to avoid that. Like, oh, they're not as important. That big thing is important, and that we focus on that. But I can tell you, when you work on yourself and you work on those little relationships, it ripples out, and it ripples out, and you start to see these positive changes and these positive things happening in your life. So even though there's always going to be problems, if there were no problems, we'd have no work to do. We'd be bored. Mm-hmm. We'd have a moment of peace and be like, now what? Yeah. You know, that's why Eve had to eat that apple. She was probably bored shitless in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so that's what we're here for. We're here for growth. So we need to be challenged. The world needs to challenge us. That's how innovation happens. That's what we, the human spirit can you know, shine. Right. And that's ultimately what we're here to do. And when we're in that place, we're able to lift others as well. That's our purpose to me. So look in your own backyard, focus on what's going on in your own life, and you will feel more satisfied with your ability to make positive changes, even little ones. That's all that matters. Because there's, we, can't, we can't heal everything. We can only do what we can. And not taking responsibility for healing everything in the world, just what we can do, and that's enough. So giving yourself permission (laughs) to only focus on what I can do because I can't spiritually develop for everyone. That's not my role. I can't grow for everyone. That's not my role. I'm here to grow and then bring that energy into everything I do and all my interactions. And that will benefit. Absolutely. I love that. I feel like that's such a great way just to, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I especially love what you said about just starting in your home because I think when I do feel overwhelmed about how much I want to do in the world, I take it home. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> you feel a lot. I mean, our pillow talk the other night was, what are you going to do to make sure there's not a handmaid's tale situation? Um, and he's like, can I please just go to sleep? <laughs> but I mean, but I think it's important. It's, it's, you can have that conversation with your spouse, with your friend, with your mother, your father, whoever, and just start there. Mm. So I really, yeah, I think it's important that we start small and, and hopefully have a ripple effect from there. But that's why we need community as well. So if there are people who, if, if you are called to a certain cause, like for me, I'm called to the cause of helping doctors heal, helping mm-hmm. the helpers, because they don't necessarily know that they can do that for themselves or that they can ask for help. So that's my particular calling in my way as much as I can. So start there and have a great team of support. So you've got to arm yourself with the kinds of people who lift you up, but also help challenge you when you're going off on the spiral on you know negativity or I'm not enough, I'm not doing enough, and can help you see what you're already doing that is enough, that is quite substantial, and to help you bring, bring you back into yourself. Because one of the ways we burn out is by feeling like we're not doing enough and then constantly expending our energy doing things and drowning really instead of going well I'm doing what I can here oh, I think that's great I I'm sure Sienna and I both have a million more questions so oh I could go on yeah that. <laughs> no, that was so wonderful thank you yeah. thank you so much I mean is there anything else or is there one kind of piece of tidbit that you'd like the listeners to go away from you are not here to do anything alone so you need to get good people in your life you might have to pay for those people to be in your life like a therapist a debriefing specialist, a professional listener who will podcast just be producer, a podcast you. producer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they're not necessarily your spouse because spouses are not always good listeners. They, they feel like, Oh my God, I need to help. And then they offer advice and they don't valid. They're not able to validate or acknowledge where you're at. And sometimes that's all you need. Oh, so, so we can't true. expect our partner to do that unless we train them. <laughs> <laughs> 
in progress, yeah. but, <laughs> but it's worth getting, equipping yourself with like a lifelong mentor so they can always have your back and you have a particular arrangement of what you need, you know, what you expect from them and what they expect from you. Yeah. And that will help you in your growth. So we have grown up in a time where we no longer have those community mentors or those guides or those elders. And I think we're really missing out and we're suffering. We have no guidance in becoming a parent sometimes, or we don't want to parent the way we've been parented. Who do we go to? Google the parent. Yeah, and Google creates a whole other, whole other thing. Yeah. So we need, yeah, don't do this alone. You don't have all the answers. Work with someone to help reveal them for you, but not do the work for you because that's not the point. I love that. Right. Yes. Advice. Thank yes, you so much. much. And just real quick before we go, if you want to just let people know where they can find you. And also, we do want to talk about your new exciting app, which we know is a lot of work. <laughs> yes. So everyone can find me. I'm on Twitter a lot. I hang out on Twitter at, at Nats for Docs. I also have a website, drnellymartinek.com or hello at drnellymartinek.com if you want to reach me. And I have an app that I've co-founded with an emergency doctor in Canada and it's called Safe Space Health App, and it's for doctors, nurses, med students, paramedics, genetic counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, you name it, anyone in the healthcare profession. It's an anonymous space where you can dump your emotional baggage. And rather than having counseling or therapy, it's not about that. It's about using that, your experiences to learn from them and to have tangible practical strategies to implement into your everyday life or into your practice, into your work and watch it change. So we're here to transform practice into the ways that you imagined you would be working when you decided to go into medicine or nursing or any other of the professions. And you don't have to feel worried that anyone's going to judge you with whatever you bring. You could vent, you can do whatever you need, but just know we're not going to let you stay there. We're going to use it to help you with your growth and transform your experience and work within a community of people who want the same thing. Wow, that's needed. Yeah, <laughs> oh my gosh, so needed. I'm really happy yeah. that's in the And world. it's part of a wider prevention, a su suicide prevention strategy, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, when you're working on having a space to feel safe and unload your emotions and learn from it, it can support your mental health, your mental well-being, as well as can become one of the earlier interventions to suicide. So we're all working it all out and hope to launch it by the end of this year. Congratulations. Yay. Yeah, we'll definitely be on the lookout. Yay. Or if you let us know, we'll also make sure that we announce it for you too. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, thank you both. Thank you for all the work that you do and putting it out in the world. We hope you enjoyed this episode. How lucky are we that we get to chat to these mega talented folks? I think we're pretty fucking lucky. <laughs> Hell yes. So if you happen to like it too, share it with your mates and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. And don't forget the conversation doesn't end here. We would love to hear from you. What did you think of today's episode? What else do you want to talk about? Yeah, what kind of conversations are you having? Or maybe what conversations aren't you having? Yeah, good point. Anyway, until next time. Bye.